This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew. I know we kind of sped to the end of chapter 9 last week because we were really trying to get into chapter 10, but we are going to be in it tonight. I just want to touch on three verses, the last three verses of chapter 9, because it's a lead-in to chapter 10. It deals directly with it, or it relates directly with what Jesus begins to talk about in chapter 10. So chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. But when he saw the multitude, speaking of Jesus... When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he, then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. We're right at the end of Matthew chapter 9 because it leads right into chapter 10. So what was happening here? Well, there's actually quite a bit of teaching right here in these three, these three verses. Now, we look at the text, we read it. What does it say about Jesus? Jesus, seeing the masses of people, was moved not with greed. He didn't look at the people like they were dollar signs. He didn't look at the people like, oh, this is a chance to increase my prestige by gaining a massive social media following and influencing all these people, and then that's going to make me big, and then I can get my name in with Google to get some ad revenue, and then I'll post all this stuff on YouTube. Not that there's anything wrong with doing that. We've talked about that. We've talked about doing that ourselves, and we're just not going to go that route at this time. But that was not his attitude. He was not moved with greed. He was not moved with pride. He was not moved with lust of any kind. He was moved with compassion. That's what a loving God and a loving Savior feels toward the human race. And I don't like to talk about feelings a whole lot because too many people listen too much to their feelings now. And that's really got people moving down some, some terrible paths. I read something on Twitter earlier today. Somebody really observed it. They nailed it when they said, ignorance plus emotions is all it takes to brainwash people into believing all kinds of terrible and destructive ideas. And that's a fact, okay? But God has emotions. God feels and acts upon love as it, he also feels and has, has acted upon wrath and will again at the time appointed. He feels grief. He feels joy. He feels pretty much the entire spectrum of human emotions, except, well, even jealousy. Did you know that? Our God is a jealous God, but his jealousy is pure and it is clean, and it doesn't carry the human taint of selfish uh, lusts with it. Because God knows what's good for us. God knows what's best for us. He knows exactly what he designed every individual one of us to be. And we're going to get more to that in just a moment. So what did he feel? He looked at these masses of people, and he was moved with compassion. And it tells us why. Because they fainted, meaning they were uh, physically weary, and they were, at, they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. 
And we talked about this. I leaned really heavy on it at the end of last week's study. That's not a derogatory observation. It's not a derogatory comparison. All right. We're, we're compared to a number of things in Scripture. We're likened unto sheep. We are likened in other places unto the fish of the sea. And we are likened in this very set of verses here, this very paragraph. We are likened unto the fruit or the, or the wheat of the harvest. None of those are insulting. None of those lessen us from our divine design, if you will, or the divine intention that God created us with. That is very much what we are like. And if it does seem insulting, well, that's just our pride that's getting insulted and it needs to be kicked and crucified anyway. When your pride is crucified and has died and is properly buried beneath the cross of Christ, then you don't take personal offense to the things that are shared with us in the Word. You don't take any offense to it at all. And if you do take offense to it, then you crucify that too. And you pray and you remember that God loves us. And that's why He, that's why He teaches us and guides us and brings us more, ever, ever, ever closer and ever more into the image of Christ. So He was moved with compassion. And he saw within every one of those people that were amassed there, and we don't know how many there were, but there were quite a few because it says there was a multi there were multitudes, plural, not just one multitude, which is a lot, but several multitudes. There was a lot of people there. But he saw in every single one of them, every single one of them, the tremendous potential for them to be something that his own blood would eventually make a way for them to become. He didn't just look at a bunch of wicked sinners. Yes, he said that they were evil, but he wasn't insulting them when he called them evil. Because even when he said it, he kind of said it in sort of a, as sort of an aside observation to a greater point that he was trying to make. Remember back to Matthew chapter five, if you or chapter five, chapter six, if ye being evil still love to give good gifts to your children. I'm not going to say raise your hands if you're evil. Hopefully nobody does. But raise your hands if you've ever had children or if you've ever been a child. There, that covers everybody. I ought to see everybody's hand. So that covers pretty much all of it. So he said, if ye being evil love to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven love to give good gifts unto those that love him? Okay, well, that's a big point there. Jesus saw these masses. We're at the, the tail end of Matthew chapter 9. He saw the, the potential of every one of them. He looked at him just look at he wasn't just looking at a mass of ungodly people thinking, man, I gotta die to save this lot. Can you believe that? Man, what a bum rap I've got to deal. That wasn't that wasn't Jesus' attitude. He saw in every one of them. Okay, now there's Moisha over there. There's Yehuda over there. There's Marashahu over there. There's just you know all these Jewish names probably that were coming across his mind, because he knew all these people's names. He knew them because he was God the Son of God, still is. And he saw within them, that man over there, if he'll actually stick with me through this thing, and if he'll be faithful all the way until the time that I die to pay for every one of his sins, and if he then relies upon and accepts my blood sacrifice to cover and pay for his sins and change him and convert him. Jesus used that language. He used the word convert when he was talking to Peter. 
Okay, if he'll just do that, then I know what I can do in Moisha's life. I know that Moisha will become a tremendous light of the gospel and he'll bring glory to my father's kingdom and it'll be good and God, God will be honored. And then it's going to make him more into the image of me, which is what my father in heaven wanted all the time and so on. This was the kind of attitude that Jesus had looking to the disciple or looking at looking upon these multitudes. He saw their tremendous potential and he sees every he sees that in every single one of us. Let me can I make this personal? I know it's a Bible study or a Bible lecture, okay, but I really want to make this personal. He looked at you and he saw every bit of the potential that you had. And all that had to happen was that he had to get the sin out of the way. And in order for that to happen, he had to get through to you with the gospel and then hope for the right response. And he knew when the right time was to send the gospel your way and maybe to send it your way a second time, maybe a third, maybe a fourth. Maybe it took hearing it 10 times before your will finally crumbled and you said, I'm not going to fight God anymore. I'm going to let be, I'm going to let God be God in my life. And then the sin moved out of the way and then he began to work in you, began to work on you and he began to, 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 he began to do uh, wondrous things. You may not have realized much of the fruit in that effort yet, but be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with God as he continues to work on you. And then who knows what he's going to make you into. There might be a preacher in here. Just a thought, not trying to plant any ideas in anybody's heads because I don't call people to preach. That's not my job. God calls people. And if he does that, you'll know it. And I don't have to worry about it. And then that'll be up to you whether or not you'll answer that. But but then, you know, not everybody's called to that. So, again, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to do some Jedi mind control or something like that. I, I don't have that ability anyway. If I did, then every pew in this place would be full and we've had we'd have row, a row of chairs on each side line in the aisle where people could sit and it'd be a fire hazard in here because we'd have so many people. Trust me, I'd do it. Maybe that wouldn't be right, but there's reasons why God doesn't let us have that kind of ability. <clears throat> anyway, that was his attitude was one of love and of compassion and of recognizing the, the, the potential that people have if they'll just let God make them free of sin. He likens them unto the fruit of the harvest as he declares to his disciples that they are plenteous. Let's look at verses 37 and 38 before we move on to the next chapter. He then he say, then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. He wasn't insulting people by saying that they were no smarter than a field full of wheat. That was not his attitude, not in the least. That's just how it is. How many people were alive in the world in Jesus's day? We don't know, but there may have been across the face of the whole earth only a few million, maybe even less than that. You might have been, but you might have been able to number it in the low millions, maybe even the high hundreds of thousands. I don't know. I haven't looked it up, but I know that there was nowhere near as many people as there are today. Nowhere near. We topped seven billion just a few years ago, and so I know we've got to be pushing eight soon because that's how populations. That's how population growth occurs. And then something has to happen to wipe that out, whether it's a plague like oh, in Europe, the Black Death, or you know some absolutely monstrous 
uh, military conflict that just lays waste to an entire nation. Some th such things have happened in human history. We're not hoping that that happens, we're just letting you know. The harvest field out there measures in the billions. Let that sink in. Billions of souls. How many do you think are saved? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think there's any way to really nail that number down accurately, and that's fine. But I guarantee you, if there's even one billion genuinely saved, and by the way, there's not. I, I think I can say that with some real confidence. There's, several, I, there's probably hundreds of millions, yes. But I don't think we've got a billion that are genuine, genuinely born again by the Spirit of God. Even if there were a solid billion really right with God, that's over six billion that aren't. That harvest field is massive. You say, well, what am I supposed to do with that kind of a number in my head? Well, not a whole lot, okay? But what about the town we live in? Now, I know this keeps coming up, and I honestly did not intend this, but this is what's in the Word as we have come about it by natural course. So you can't accuse me of having an agenda. Okay, although I do, I've had an agenda since the first day we pulled into town and we started on it that afternoon, didn't we? Had our first visitor that night. So, yes, there is an agenda, but that's the agenda of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Great Commission. Go ye is what Jesus said to his disciples. So we got 80,000 people to hear in Cheyenne, 80,000 people. My wife and I uh, took some time today to reach out to a couple, two or three of them. And, uh, well, where are they? I don't know. But the seed has been planted now, hasn't it? Let's see what happens. You know, it, you didn't necessarily come the very first time you were invited. You might have, but you might not have. And even if you did, you might have had to come a few times before God was able to get that seed of the word down deep enough into some crack into your hardened, fallow psyche. You know, you know what I'm saying now. And I'm not insulting people. That's just how we all were. It took Pastor Kinson six months, four services and two Bible studies a week to pound the gospel into my head back in 1992 because I thought I already was okay. And so it took a while. And that's fine if it takes a while. But let God have his way. And eventually that word's going to get into you and it's going to, it's going to germinate, sprout roots, pop up through the ground of your spiritual garden and begin to bear fruit. And oh, what a change that will be. Amen. That's a good thing. So he says the harvest is plenteous. The laborers are few. So that's, that's the condition. That's the problem. The problem is not that the harvest is plenteous. The problem is that the laborers are few. There's not enough workers. There's not enough guys with sickles and scythes and John Deere combines and harvesters to get out there in the field and start raking them in, not to reduce it to such mercenary terms, but there just isn't enough. So then what did Jesus say? Verse 38, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. He didn't say, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. Well, who's the Lord of the harvest? Well, the Lord himself. God is the Lord of the harvest. He didn't say, pray that he will just bring them all in. He said, pray the Lord of the harvest 
that he will send forth laborers. And this is the responsibility of the living church of Almighty God. This is the responsibility of every living, breathing, born again congregation. That responsibility rests upon our shoulders. And it's not to put undue pressure, but it is to remind us Jesus died for them just as much as he died for, for us. And it was not an easy death. He didn't just take a bullet and it was over. No, we know what he went through. Medically, we have an idea. The physical torment and the torture that was involved in his sacrifice and the payment for our sins. It wasn't just a dying on his part. It was an enduring of the wrath of Almighty God because we could not. Because if we got his wrath, it'd be game over and it'd be game over for all eternity. Okay, so so high a price did he pay and so great a love does he have for us and for the whole human race. So the responsibility for bringing that message to the masses falls upon the living, breathing human beings that comprise the church of the living God. Oh, let that sink in for a second. It feels a little heavy when you think about it, doesn't it? There's some weight to that cross, isn't there? It's not as heavy as you think it is. When you first feel the weight of that cross on your back, you're like, I don't think I can do this. I don't know if I, uh, you know, why, can, I just, can I just attend? Well, of course you can just attend. But let me, be, let, me, let me be very clear about this. Whether it's part of an organized effort or not, whether it's something casual, passing on the street or whatever, it is the responsibility of every born-again believer to be a witness, to be a witness and to give an answer concerning the deliverance that God has brought in our lives. Can I, do I dare ask for an amen on that? Amen. Amen. Well, I can't talk to folks. I don't know how to talk to folks. Well, I know somebody who told God the same thing. Way back in Genesis, Exodus, Moses said, I don't have any tongue for this. And God started getting upset with Moses because Moses kept arguing with God. You know how it is when you're trying to communicate with somebody, with someone, you're trying to tell them this is what I need to happen, and then all they do is like argue, 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 like your kids. You know? It was the same way kind of with Moses and God right there. Uh, I, I, I'm not eloquent, I can't talk, and all these different things. And finally, finally, God was like, all right, fine. Look, here's Aaron, your brother. He'll be your mouthpiece, okay? But he doesn't let us off the hook. I'm not saying that you sin against God if you're nervous. I'm not trying to make this a heaven or hell issue, but it is a heaven or hell issue for other people. It really is. Not to lay it on too thick, but it really is. Because where would we be if no one had brought the message to us? Where would we be if no one had even brought the invitation to us? So however you do it, he makes it clear. We have a responsibility as born again believers to tell somebody or at least at the very least to be ready to give an answer. If someone says, if somebody even opens up the door to you, hey, what church do you go to? Do you go to church? Oh yeah, I go to New Testament Christian Church. Okay, that's cool. And then you don't dare say anything else. Come on. 
They just open the door for you. Just walk in and say, yeah, you know Jesus? You know anything about Jesus? Did you know Jesus died for your sins? It doesn't take eloquence. It certainly doesn't take a degree in English. It doesn't take a degree in communications. It doesn't take any of that junk. All it takes is a heart that's actually been touched by God. And if he's ever done that, and you're already prepared to talk to someone about God, all you have to do is tell them what he did for you. Yeah, let me tell you about somebody that forgave me of everything I ever did wrong. And let me tell you what happened when he did that. It changed me. I'm not even the same person I was before I came to Christ. I mean, simple language. It doesn't take eloquence. There's too much stock in that junk anyway. Why not just speak in the common language? Anyway, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest. And then Jesus entreats them to pray. But, but I, it's really kind of smacked me between the eyes when I was going through this earlier. From whence do these laborers then arise? We don't show up in the form of angels. We know that. We talked about that last week. You pray God to send forth laborers into the harvest field and God will raise up laborers from within our own ranks. Just think about that. Just let that sit on your mind. Radiate for a while. Let the Holy Spirit work on that. Okay. Chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called unto him his 12 disciples... He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of diseases. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. He calls them both 12. He calls them 12 disciples in verse one. He calls them 12 apostles in verse two. What's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? There's not much difference, but there is a difference there. All right. Just let me slip this in here before we really get into the text. A disciple is someone who simply brought themselves under the discipline of either a person or a person's teaching or both. Because you see the connection there. Disciple, discipline. It's the same root word that's in there. Disciple, discipline. So his 12 disciples were those that had been brought under the discipline of the teachings of the Lord Jesus. So, but now what's an apostle? Well, an apostle isn't necessarily the same thing as a disciple. It's just a different definition, different words. But they were both. An apostle is someone who is sent. Specifically, someone who is sent by God. You ever wonder, ever wonder why there's similarities in words like, um, um, well, the word apostle. And then there's another word that's very similar to it, similar sounding to it, apostate. But those two things are worlds apart. Well, all right, well, what do they mean? An apostle is someone who is sent. And in the context of the gospel, it is someone who is sent by God. Okay, thus Paul was the apostle of God to the Gentiles. Peter, I believe, well, yes, I believe Peter was an apostle of God unto the Jews and unto others as well. And likewise, James. But apostate is someone who has departed. You see the difference? One is sent, go ye, and then the person goes. And then another of their own free will decides to quit and walk away. That's an apostate. That's what that, per that word means and why they're similar. So just a little bit of vocabulary for you there. So he gave them power against all unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sicknesses, all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican. We know about Matthew, the publican. James, the son of Alphaeus, 
and Labaius, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. We know that name very well, who also betrayed him. Okay, so now we've got the introduction of the 12 men that he was about to send, apostles, right? These 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The, verse, the very first thing they started to do was tell them where not to go. Now that's important to know because at this point in time, Jesus was sent unto the Hebrews, his own people, in an attempt because that was that's the way it was supposed to be. He was the Jewish Messiah sent unto the Jews, a Hebrew among the Hebrews. Okay, we know the difference between those terms. And if we don't, you well, no, we haven't covered it in a while. So why do we keep bouncing back and forth between these these terms? Hebrew, Jew, Israelite. What's the difference? Aren't they all one and the same? Well, not necessarily. Okay, a Hebrew refers to their ethnicity, a genetic descendant by way of Isaac from Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, a child of Abraham through the lineage of Isaac. It's important to know because you go back into Genesis and read about Abraham's other son, Ishmael, and all the problems that caused and continues to cause unto this day. Just look in the news and read about what all those basket cases are doing at the border of Israel and then complaining that they're dying. Well, quit picking a fight. Anyway, enough of that. Hebrew refers to the, a genetic Descendant, a natural descendant of Abraham through the lineage of Isaac, God's chosen people. Jew refers to their religion. The one refers to their ethnicity. The other refers to their religion, the religion of the Jews. So you, if a person converted to Judaism back in the Old Testament, then they were every bit as much of a Jew as anybody else. They were counted that way. But they, of course, were not Hebrew. You can't change your genes. You can't be like that one woman, Shannon Dolezal, who was as white as a fish belly, who claimed to be black and became the uh, became a local chapter president of the NAACP up in Washington a few years ago until she got outed. And she got outed in a big way. Now she can't even hold down a job. You can't change your genetics. You can't change your ethnicity. But a person can change their religion. So you can become a Jew, but you couldn't become a Hebrew. You just can't. You just can't do that. And then Israelites simply referred to their nationality. Nationality and ethnicity is not the same thing. The nation to which you belong is something that a person can also change. A person can renounce citizenship in one country, go to another country, and then become a naturalized citizen there. So do you see the difference? Hebrew, ethnicity, Jew, religion, Israelite, the nation that they were from. Why is that important? Well, it's, it's good to understand so you know why there's three different terms. You read of the Israelites or the children of Israel. You read of the Hebrews. You read of the Jews. And for, yes, for many hundreds and hundreds of years, those three were almost always synonymous. Okay? That just kind of clarifies an academic issue. It's important to know. So he tells them, don't go into, the, don't go into any way of the Gentiles yet. Or into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, because that's who they were that's who was that's who was first in line to receive the gospel. Does that make sense? They were first in line to receive the gospel because that's who had been promised the Messiah. They get their chance first. And that's why Jesus had the attitude that he had 
toward some of the Gentiles that, that approached him for healing for a sick daughter or resurrection for a, uh, resurrection for a, a deceased family member or for a sick servant or something like that. Because the Gentiles weren't really entitled yet. Now, it was in God's plan to open that all up. And he did when the veil was torn and Jesus died. But for the time that Jesus was alive on earth, he was sent unto the Jews. And that's important to understand because it puts a lot of this stuff in its proper context. And in the later chapters of Matthew, as we'll get to eventually, Lord willing, he reads about some of the end times prophecies in the book of Matthew. All right, then it'll. You'll understand that some of that prophecy is for the Jews, not the Gentiles. So when we get into some of those verses, when he says, you know, let not him who is on the rooftop go down into his house to get his stuff, but let him just run for the hills. And he's talking about uh, some of the things that are to come that involve Antichrist and, and the tribulation, things like that. They don't actually pertain to Gentile believers because we're going to be long gone when that happens because of the rapture. So the things that we won't even have to be fearful, we don't even have to be thinking about those things. They don't pertain to us, but they will pertain to the Jews of Israel at that time. So we'll get more into that. He's telling his disciples, first of all, where not to go. They needed to go to Israel first. They needed to go to their own people first. And in verse seven, he says, and as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wasn't giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ to preach because the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. In a nutshell, you can summarize the gospel of Jesus Christ as this. Messiah has come. Messiah has died for our sins. Messiah has risen again. And you can be born again because of it. You could take the whole gospel and, and uh, I mean, there's so much more to it, I understand. But you could really, you could condense it to that line right there because that's the good news is that your sins have been paid for. If you'll accept the price, you can be born again and be a whole new creature in Christ. And then, of course, everything that comes after that. But this, he was giving them the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. It's not the same message as the gospel of Christ. He said, as you preach, go. Or he says, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he said, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, because he'd given them the power to do this, cast out devils, Freely you have received, freely give. In other words, don't charge money for your services because it came to you free of charge. So when, if you want to apply that in a modern sense, and it's not a perfect application, but if you want to apply that in the modern sense, we don't have a cover charge to get through the door. Don't charge people money to come to church. Yes, tithe is commanded. That's in the Bible, yes. But... We don't block people's entrance to the house of God if they don't pony up some cash. That's crazy. Freely we received. And so freely we give. And so if somebody gives in an offering, they do so by their own free will. Tithe is commanded, yes, but that's different. That's different than offerings. And even then, we don't put, we don't put a gun to people's head. You know what I'm saying? Let people hear the gospel. Let them hear it. Don't charge them money. And if someone contacts or, 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 or asks one of us to pray for them, because people do that. People ask believers to pray for them. We don't say, all right, that'll cost you five bucks, though. That's my time. My time's worth money. That's a horrible attitude to have. 
He told his disciples, he said, you go and do these things. You heal, you heal the sick. Don't kill the sick. I'm sorry. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. And then he said, freely you've received, freely give. Nobody charged you for the word of God. So don't charge others for the word of God. Now, when God gets hold of their heart and they love God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength, well, then they'll begin to give. They'll begin to give because the spirit of God will move them to. And he'll show them about tithe and all that. And that's another teaching. If you have any questions about that, ask me. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it one-on-one -on -one so we don't make anybody feel self-conscious. But most people are already giving and uh, quite a few paying their tithes. So that's all part of it. But he was making clear, you don't charge a fee. And then in verse 9, he even goes on and says, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey. That's uh, writing. Don't write out a script. The words aren't exactly the same, but it, but it applies either way. He said, don't write out a script of what you're going to say to people. In other words, you know, these guys are going door to door, right? Can you see them going door to door, you know, with a scroll? First of all, that you know, papyrus or whatever it was they were writing on back then was not cheap. Can you see them going, you know, hi, 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 all nervous and awkward. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I want to, to I want to share with you the, the gospel of the kingdom the kingdom of the Lord is at hand have you believed will you receive us man that's just painful for everybody involved isn't it you feel awkward they feel awkward they feel embarrassed for you they're looking at their watch they just want you to leave he said don't even carry a script with you because when you're really in tune with god when you're really in tune to the holy ghost the holy ghost will He'll, he'll give you words to say when you talk to people a lot of times. And even if he doesn't, a lot of times, if you just be a normal, not weird person, then you know how to talk to people anyway, right? Just saying. He said, don't even take, don't take a script for your journey. Neither two coats, neither shoes. I'm not saying that you guys have to, you know, if you, if you talk to someone about God, you have to take off your shoes. That's weird. He was just letting them know, don't take all of these provisions. Let's, let me read this whole set here and then we'll, We'll talk about the actual message of it, okay? So he says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, freely you've received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver. In other words, don't take any money along. Don't take a script. Don't take two coats. Don't take shoes, nor yet staves. That's walking sticks. For the workman is worthy of his meat. What he's making sure that they know is, don't worry about providing all this stuff. Don't worry about providing all this stuff because God is going to meet your needs as you go. God doesn't give anyone a job to do that he does not provide them the wherewithal to accomplish it one way or another. And he's moved people's hearts to give to carriers of the gospel, to give to them the things that they needed in order to do their work. Have you ever heard of some missionaries that uh, they get some idea? And sometimes it gets hyped up in the media, not so much anymore because the media just doesn't like to say anything about God unless it's critical. But have you ever heard about people that have taken missionary journeys across the country and they just set out on nothing but a bike? I'm not talking about Mormons now. They're not carrying the gospel. They're carrying the gospel of Joseph Smith. You tear, the, you tear those guys down to their core beliefs and Jesus isn't anywhere in it, okay? We're talking about actual Christians, born-again believers. But they just cast out and say, you know what, I'm going to walk from here till Maine. 
and God is going to meet my needs somehow. And I'll tell you right now, even I'm thinking that that's a little bit crazy. But then what happens? A lot of times you hear about how God worked miracles to provide them food to eat, roofs over their heads to sleep so they didn't have to sleep out under the stars. And I'm not trying to tell anybody here to do that, okay? I'm using an extreme example. But the, the, the overall lesson is still there. When you trust God and you want to carry God's message to people, then you stand on God's provision and His promise, and He makes a way to do it, whether a small way or a great way, you know, depending on the scale of what you're trying to do. So He said, the workman is worthy of his meat. And in whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when ye come into an house, salute it. He didn't mean, you know, salute it, but greet it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now, he didn't say if it be not worthy, torch the place to the ground and kill the people and shout praise Allah while you're doing it. You know, there's lots of people that reject the gospel. That's fine. Whether it was the gospel of the kingdom here in the day in the day of the apostles or in the day of Christ on earth, or whether it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that we carry into all the world now. Many people have rejected it. It doesn't mean that we want them to die. Your daughter isn't doing that, sir. Is she on her missionary trip? She's not torching huts or anything that they're not. Not, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> oh my goodness. We're gonna be praying. God, let them accept <laughs> the gospel message. <laughs> that's, just, that's just not how the real God works. That's not how a loving God who is moved with compassion, seeing the multitudes as sheep scattered abroad without a shepherd, that's not, that's not his attitude towards, the, towards lost humanity. Yes, there's a day of judgment coming, but we're not the ones delivering that judgment and this ain't the day. Amen? This is the hour of mercy. This is the dispensation of grace. This is the age of go ye, he says to the believer. And this is the age of come ye, he says to the sinner. And so that's the attitude we've got to have. If Jesus was moved with compassion, so must we have. We can't be angry soul winners. We can't be. My wife's laughing at me because years ago, I used to get irritated when people didn't want to even accept an invitation. Because I took it personally. It's the wrong attitude to have. Because what we do, we do because one, we're moved with compassion as Jesus was. He's our example. And because two, we're doing it for God. Because Jesus said, go ye. Praise God. So we can't be angry soul winners. We can't be embittered. And we can't take it personally when someone says, get out of here with that junk. I don't want your car. Get off my property. He said, if the house be worthy, then let your peace come upon it. And if that house be not worthy, then let your peace return to you. Don't kill anybody. Don't beat them up. Don't blast them in the name of Jesus. Oh, you dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. You're going to die and burst hell wide open. Whoa, 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 whoa. Dial it back. That's not the attitude to have. That really isn't the attitude to have. That's not love. That's personal offense and irritation that somebody didn't want to hear what we had to say. Okay? Love them. Let us love them. Because folks that are like that, a lot of times, they don't have a clue how, how far away from God they even are. And those that do, 
That's why they're that mad. Because they know they're wrong. They know they're far from God. And they're just not thinking the right way. And so we're commanded to have compassion. Well, what do I do if they jump me? What do I do if they try to beat me up? Well, we'll leave that largely up to your conscience. But we do have Jesus' words on that subject. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Now, what happens if they strike that one? I don't know. But we are told not to resist evil. But if you do resist evil, I'm not going to throw stones. Because you're out there doing the Lord's work anyway. And it's not like we're doing it for our health. You know, there's a whole lot of other things that a person can do with their time. And so for a believer to take some of their time, which really is the Lord's time, we have to remember it that way. But for a believer to take some of their time, to reach out to a lost soul and say something to them about God, about the gospel. That's not something to just be counted as a light thing. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And if more believers would do that, our country would be in better shape. And maybe there's just a lot of believers that got tired of the rejection, so they just assume stay home and mow the lawn and cut the dandelions out of their yard. But there's a bigger harvest field out there than our dandelions, isn't there? And whosoever shall not receive you, verse 14, whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. For verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Ouch. So, talk to someone about God or you try to extend a hand of invitation or a word of the gospel to someone and they reject it. You know, I'm not saying you literally do this gesture, okay, because that's kind of theatrical, all right? But Jesus did tell them to do, he did tell his disciples to do this, that if a, a house or a family or a whole city rejected them and would not receive their message, then on your way out of it, he just told them to shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. You don't do it out of hatred. You don't do it out of a desire to see judgment fall upon them because that, really that really isn't the spirit of Christ. It really isn't. We don't pray for destruction to fall upon wicked people. We pray for wicked people to come to their senses and to seek God to repent of their sins and to be born again. But that gesture was sort of an act of you just put it behind you because there's nothing you can do about it and you move on. And so if the house rejects us, rejects you, or whatever, don't let it make you bitter. Don't let it make you angry. Don't let it make you feel disgusted. Or don't even let it make you feel dejected or discouraged. You just sort of in your mind's eye, brush the dust off your feet, and you move on to the next home or to the next person that you meet or to the next opportunity that God opens up for you to say something to someone about the gospel or pass on an invitation to the house of God, you just move on. You don't take it personally. You don't let it get to you. You don't become so emotionally invested in the person that when they reject you, that you feel a deep and intense personal injury or loss. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because it's only going to hurt you. It's not going to win them. It's not going to punish them. Praise God for that. You just move on. 
because he says in verse 15, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Well, why would it be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah? Weren't Sodom and Gomorrah the, the, the sort of Old Testament pinnacles of wickedness, weren't they? Weren't they so far gone that their men were openly with men and their women were openly with women? And you know the context in which I'm speaking. It's where we get the word sodomite, sodomy, and all of that stuff. Weren't they so wicked that, and it wasn't just that that was going on in their city. I mean, there was all manner of sin going on in their city. Weren't they so evil and wicked that God destroyed those cities with fire from heaven? How would it be more tolerable in the day of judgment for them than for a city that rejects the gospel? Because Sodom and Gomorrah never had the gospel. They never even had a chance to believe. They never had a chance to repent, so to speak, the same way, the same way that people have a chance now. Because the gospel isn't just, the gospel isn't just a newfangled way to come under the law of Moses. That's not how it is. Back in the Old Testament, the best they had was the law of Moses. And in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, they didn't even have that. All there was was Abraham and the promise that came by way of the patriarchs. Well, that was the time of Abraham. So there was the promise that Abraham had. There wasn't a whole lot articulated about how people should live. But now, today, there is not only the complete revealed word of God, in very clear, plain language about how we should how we should live. And the whole purpose of that is so that it gets into our heads and into our hearts and becomes a part of our very identity, right? It's not just some external legal code that we try to memorize and try to remember to do right. No, it actually becomes part of you, right? Like the morality you learned from your parents when you were growing up. It actually becomes a part of your personality and your, your internal makeup and your morality. That's the Word of God, or supposed to be the Word of God that, that fulfills that. Nowadays, there's not only the whole revealed will of God in the Bible, but there's also the blood of Christ that changes the human heart. The law never did that. The promise to Abraham didn't change the human heart. These were just external things that God had provided. But now, because there is such a profound deliverance and change made available to the human race, for us to reject it, for anyone to reject it, their condemnation in the day of judgment will be worse even than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's just something to think about. Jesus was given His people a job to do and He gives us a job to do today also. And so, we want to do something with that, don't we? How do I do something with that? We'll come talk to me first of all. We'll see if we can incorporate you into something that we got going on. But even if you don't, God's already touched your heart to talk to someone else about it. Because it's the natural result of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because you want someone else to know that glory too. So let's start praying. Not necessarily right now, this instant, but let's start praying in our lives. God, open a door of opportunity for me and then give me the words to say to somebody that might pop open a door and change their life forever. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. 
Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving.